All right, Micah chapter 7. Let's read verses 14 through 20. Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitary in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, they shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God, and shall fear because of thee. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob, and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for an opportunity to gather in freedom. Thank you for our Sunday school hour, for all the classes that are taking place. Thank you for every teacher. I pray now you'd open our understanding that we might understand the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. So we covered verse 14 last week, which is a prayer from Micah to God. And the prayer is for God's blessings upon Israel. Now there's mixed opinion on the timing of where this prayer would apply. Is it while they're in captivity or would it be after they have come out of captivity? Some see a mix of both and I can certainly see that. Uh, Definitely this prayer is being answered as it relates to them coming out of captivity. Mainly I think because of this last phrase that we have here in verse 14 that talks about being blessed as in the days of old. Well, that's a reference of when they had come out of bondage. They had come out of Egyptian captivity. And so, into the land and all the blessings associated with that. And it was a time before their sins were multiplied. Even though they were stiff-necked, even though idolatry was ever-present, it was a time when God's blessings were clearly upon them as he was establishing them as a peculiar nation. Micah's prayer is that they would be shepherded and fed again by God, that they would be a separated people unto God, dwelling safely in the wood. They would experience the fruitfulness of Carmel, the fruitfulness of the plains once again, and it's also a picture of their fruitfulness and their growth. So that was all last week. Let's begin this morning. Verse 15, Micah now is going to begin receiving an answer to his prayer. So God here is replying, According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. So Micah, he prayed for the blessings of the old days once again, and God's Direct answer to the close of Micah's prayer is according to the days when they came out of Egypt. Micah prays for the blessings of the days of old and God says that's exactly what's on the way. I will show unto him marvelous things. This Hebrew word for marvelous, it means to separate as in being distinguished from others. The captivity to come wasn't really going to distinguish God from other gods and nations. Sometimes things happen in our life and it looks like God's not interested. 
looks like maybe God's not at work. And during something like this, when a nation is taken over, going into captivity, their city destroyed, how does that distinguish God from all the other nations? So those who would witness and those who would hear of this destruction and their captivity would think that the gods of the other nations were mightier than the God of Israel. And as I mentioned last week, Israel is supposed to be a nation which was uniquely different from all other nations for the purpose of showing the world, hey, there's a living God who, who lives in heaven that is interested in the affairs of man and that intervenes on behalf of His people. And, and they were to be that nation which showed forth God that, that there is someone who is invested in them and has died to redeem them. God wanted them to live holy in a way that they could honor God to show other nations this is what it looks like. This is what clean looks like. This is what holy looks like. But Israel's sins separated them from God. And now severe judgment's on the way. And it wasn't just going to be an internal judgment, but this was going to be a judgment for all the world to see. And while we understand that during periods of judgment, God is still at work, this, in the minds of the other nations wasn't going to distinguish God from the pagan gods. In our day of prevailing atheistic thinking among the world's predominant nations, this may not seem like such a big deal. What we're talking about here, a lot of nations today don't really reference a God. And we're getting more and more to that point. And so, this is a big deal. I want you to understand that, what is taking place here. Uh, For example, today we are witnessing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russia isn't mentioning how their God is going to prevail. And Ukraine's not talking about how their God is going to protect and keep them. Now there are some Christian things happening. Some churches are starting to really uh, grow and people are crying out to the Lord. But on a national level, I haven't heard that yet from uh, Zelensky. Is that his name? The president of Ukraine. So we're watching this invasion today. There's no talk of God. There's no talk of our God's going to defeat your God and all this kind of thing. But in these days, in Bible days, in the Old Testament, man, this is what it was all about. Every nation had their God they worshipped. They credited their gods for uh, being able to make them a nation. They identified themselves according to their God. There was these national level gods, if you will, that existed, we, we really see it in earnest show up very clearly when we get to Egypt and Israel. And we start to see this contrast between the gods of Egypt and Jehovah God. Egypt had their polytheism. They had numerous gods that they, they worshipped, and that was in contrast to Israel's monotheistic God. And then later, as the children of Israel became a nation and they entered into the land, the Bible talks about the gods of the inhabitants of the land. Those nations they were to drive out. And he talks about how um, they don't need to get entangled with those things and ensnared with those gods. And then we hear about the gods of the Philistines. And then later on we have the gods of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and then the Romans. And there was always this understanding that the conquering of another nation wasn't just about military strength, but it was about whose God is stronger, whose God is able to deliver. 
For example, when God sent the ten plagues upon Egypt, they were a direct assault against their gods and goddesses. God was indicating how He was mightier than the gods of Egypt. God was showing the world that He was superior to Egypt's false gods. When Israel was hemmed in at the Red Sea and the Egyptian armies in hot pursuit, all hope seemed lost. But remember what Moses said to Israel. He said, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation or the deliverance of the Lord. Hey, our God is going to overcome this enemy. Our God is going to deliver us. When Moses was on the mountain receiving the law from God, the people saw that Moses delayed to come down. Immediately they told Aaron, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. It was just too strange not to go forward without without some sort of God. Aaron received gold from the people, and magically this calf appeared. (laughs) That's what he tried to say, amen. Um, He fashioned it, the Bible says. And Anyway, but after he made that molten calf, remember what he said? These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. You see, in their way of thinking, they had to have some sort of God to attribute to their deliverance. Well, God was ready to destroy the children of Israel. He was going to use Moses to make a great nation. Moses interceded on the behalf of Israel, and he said, Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? So Moses understood, Listen, God, if you bring us out here and destroy us, the Egyptians are going to speak bad of you. It was all about the gods. And we see this more clearly later on when Israel, they send the 12 spies into the land and the 10 reported back it was a lost cause. The giants are too many, they're too great. God was ready once again to destroy the children of Israel. Moses, once again, he intercedes on behalf of the nation. And Moses said in Numbers 14, 13 through 16, he says, Then the Egyptians shall hear it if you destroy us. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that thou art, they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. Now thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore unto them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness." And Moses understood that God's glory, His fame, was at stake in all of this. See, it was all about the gods who could prevail over each other. The Egyptians would hear of how Israel had been destroyed, and they would conclude that that Lord God, He can't deliver. He can't help. He can't provide for that many people. He's unable. He's incapable. And it would, in the eyes of the Egyptians, it would make their gods look superior to the Lord. And this is how it was in those days. A nation's identity was tied to their gods. Therefore, the success of a nation in battle was all about the gods they worshipped. In Judges chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, it says, Yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods, wherefore I will deliver you no more. God says, Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen 
Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. Later in the days of Hezekiah, he was king over Judah. The Assyrians, they run through the house of Israel, they conquer them, they make their way into Judah and they get all the way to the gate of Jerusalem. The king of Assyria said to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuadeth you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. And he went on to say in 2 Kings 18, 33-35, Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at, at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepher... Let me try this. Sepharvaim. Amen. Henna. And Iva, have they delivered Samaria out of mine hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? <laughs> and so you see, I mean, we could chronicle this throughout the Old Testament. I'm not going to do that. But we see this battle between God and the gods of the other nations, and it's routinely playing out. And of course, we understand our God is almighty. But this is how nations viewed conquering other nations. If what was happening today was happening back then, then, then Russia would be saying, our God is greater than your gods and we're going to defeat you. And that's just the way it was. And so in, in the mind of a conquering nation, their God would have been mightier than Jehovah God. So when the Assyrians come through, your, your Lord can't deliver you. The Babylonians come through. Your God can't deliver you. By allowing them to go into captivity, God was not performing marvelous things. That's what I'm getting at. Marvelous things were not happening for Israel that would distinguish Him from other gods. So I hope you understand what a big deal this is that we're looking at. But God says in verse 15 of our text, The day is coming when I will show marvelous things to Israel once again. It would be like the days of old, according to the days when God brought them out of the land of Egypt. He separated Himself from those false gods, and God is saying, I will do so once again. I've already mentioned the Hebrew word for marvelous here. It means to separate being distinguished from others. And I like the law of first mention when you're studying the Bible to get a better understanding of how to define a word. And it's interesting how this Hebrew word is first used in our Bible. It's used twice in Genesis 18, 14. But, but you'll get the, the gist here. It says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? He does marvelous things. There is nothing too hard for our God. The context there in Genesis 18 is, is Sarah being able to conceive when she's past the year of being able to bear children, humanly speaking. But God said, is there anything too hard for me? I can do marvelous works. Marvelous things are those things which are humanly impossible to man, but it's nothing before God. God says in our text, according to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. Well, the second use of that word is in Exodus 3.20. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders. Same word. Which I will do in the midst thereof, and after that he will let you go. 
It would seem an impossibility that an enslaved people within the mightiest nation in the world at that time could be delivered. But with God, all things are possible. It might seem an an impossibility to be restored to the land after captivity, but nothing is too hard for God. In all that Job suffered and endured, he he concluded about God in Job 42.2, I know that thou canst do everything. God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32.27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? The angel Gabriel told the Virgin Mary she would conceive King Jesus And understandably, Mary said, How shall this be, seeing that I know not a man? And Gabriel said in Luke 1.37, For with God nothing shall be impossible. A man came to Jesus' disciples, hoping they could cast out a, a demon from this man's son, but they couldn't. And Jesus showed up, and the man brought his son to Jesus. And in Mark 9.23, Jesus said, If thou canst believe, all things are possible. To him that believeth. Jesus told his disciples, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard that, they the Bible says they were exceedingly amazed. And they said, Who then can be saved? Matthew 19, 26. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Don't ever forget that our God is the God of miracles. And you may be in what seems like an impossible situation this morning. But God can still deliver you. God can still save your marriage. God can still rescue our children. God can work miracles even if a spouse leaves or children rebel. God can do the impossible. But we have to go back to Micah 7.7, which we looked at several weeks ago. We look unto the Lord, we cry out to the Lord, and then we wait for the God of our salvation. You say, but I just don't see how it's possible. With God, it's still possible. Don't forget, we serve the God of the impossible. So God says in response to Micah's prayer, marvelous things will happen again, just like in the days of old. And I will be distinguished from all other gods as the living God once again. In Jeremiah 16, verses 12 through 15, it says, And ye have done worse than your fathers. For behold, ye walk every one after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. Therefore I will cast you out of this land, into a land that ye know not, neither ye nor your fathers. And there shall ye serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall be no more said, The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither He had driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. Now get get what Jeremiah is saying there. It's saying that the, the deliverance from captivity This captivity that we've been talking about, the deliverance from that is going to look greater than what God performed in bringing them out of Egypt. That's amazing. 
He says, you're not going to no longer say the Lord that brought you up out of Egypt, but you're going to say the Lord that brought us out of captivity. If the Lord liveth and delivers, God will be shown greater than all the other gods of the nations where they had been driven. Now look at verses 16 and 17 here. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. In verse 16, the enemies of God's people are going to be stunned at God's ability to deliver. (laughs) They will see the marvelous works of God. Something they thought that was an impossibility, they will be confounded that all their strength was no match for God. I'm thinking of the American Revolution. How can this ragtag bunch of colonials defeat the mightiest army on the face of the earth? Before it was over with, they had to put their hands over their mouth. In other words, they, they're speechless. And they would boast no more of the victory that they had against them once upon a time. They will stop their ears. I don't want to hear any more about this deliverance. I don't want to hear any more about how God has worked on your behalf. I don't want to hear it anymore. Don't tell me about my destruction. I don't want to hear all the praises to God for the victory that He brings to His people. Psalm 126, verses 1 through 3. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. You see, God's going to prevail. Always. (laughs) And as John Wesley noted, the enemy shall neither care to hear nor to speak of it. (laughs) They'll wonder at God's wonders. They'll marvel at God's marvelous works. The heathen will be left to conclude the Lord hath done great things for them. Now that's something. When even the heathen have to recognize yeah, that's, that's nothing they could have pulled off. When God brings you through to the other side of your distress, whatever you're going through today, when God brings you to the other side of that, you too will shout praises to God. Because you will have learned that your God is able to deliver in every situation. No matter the strength of the enemy, God is able to deliver you. He's able to bring you out of that circumstance. You'll be left in amazement that somehow that condition you found yourself in in such distress and anguish, it's now been for your good. And now you're looking at your life going, man, I wouldn't be who I am today or where I am today without God bringing me through that. His ways are past finding out. And certainly this is all true in salvation. God delivers someone from a life of sin and it can confound people when that happens. Now, some people, they've been raised in in good churches and they never had a whole lot of baggage, perhaps. But we know for sure some people, man, they get saved and it's like, who are you? You're not the guy I remember from 
five years ago or whatever the case. They wonder if it's even the same person because when God delivers, it's undeniable. In Acts chapter 6, Peter and John, they're arrested by the council after healing the lame man at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. I think we just covered that Sunday night. And they, the council arrests them, and they say among themselves in Acts 4, 16, the council says, what shall we do to these men? <laughs> For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all, all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. <laughs> I love that. And yet they still went on to reject. We cannot deny that this miracle has taken place. You see, when God performs a miracle in your life, it is undeniable. Amen. And even Satan and all his might is left with nothing to say. And he certainly doesn't want to hear of your salvation. Right. Now that you've been delivered from his clutches, now that you've been delivered from the bondage of sin, he doesn't want to hear that. But hey, there's rejoicing in heaven Amen. over one sinner that repents. And this principle we're talking about is true in all areas of our life, even after we're saved. God performs miracles in some ways in your life. And maybe the gainsayers are confounded. Have you had those people in your life? They're just convinced God isn't real and all those things. Maybe the doctors are confounded. Maybe you received a diagnosis and it seemed hopeless and God miraculously healed you. And even the doctors are left to say, I guess the praying worked. Unfortunately, not all are receptive when the miracle happens in your life. Sometimes your family and friends are confounded, but they're not receptive. And some will still choose to close their mouths and close their ears. But we just need to keep praising God for His deliverance anyhow. In verse 17, we see how the enemy is brought low. Don't worry, I'll rush through this so we can dismiss and wake up. The enemy is brought low, just like Satan, that old serpent was cursed upon his belly to eat dust. So the enemies of God are going to be brought low in like manner. What does that mean? God's going to humble them forcefully. Psalm 72, 9, They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. Isaiah 49, 23, And the king shall be thy nursing fathers. This is referring to the Gentiles being brought in. The kings shall be thy nursing fathers and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. Matthew Henry wrote this, quote, Proud oppressors shall now be made sensible how mean, how little they are before the great God. And they shall with trembling... And the lowest submission move out of the holes into which they had crept like worms of the earth as they are. Being ashamed and afraid to show their heads, so low shall they be brought, and such abject shall they be when they are abased. End quote. I want to tell you this morning, the enemies of God will be humbled. It, it, it says that the fear of the Lord God shall come upon His enemies. Isaiah 2, verses 17 through 21. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. 
And the idols he shall utterly abolish. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks. And into the caves of the earth for the fear of the Lord. And for the glory of his majesty. When he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty, when He ariseth to shake terribly the earth. And we certainly can see application here to the end of this age. Amen. When the Lord is going to pour out His wrath upon all His enemies. Revelation 6, 15 through 17. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men, every bondman, every free man, in other words, everybody, hide themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? Listen, there's coming a day. God's going to straighten out all this mess. Nation will no longer rise against nation. There will no longer be wars and rumors of wars. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And at that time that the seventh trumpet sounds, the Bible says that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Christ. And He's going to rule. He's going to reign. And I want to tell you at that point, the Bible then says the wrath of God is going to be poured out. And if you're not in Christ today, the wrath of God is abiding upon you. The sentence is abiding upon you. There's only one way to have that sentence removed, and that's by coming to Christ for salvation. Always remember that our God is almighty. You know, sometimes when people give testimonies, they end up having a bragging session on Satan. Uh, Preacher, I just got to testify. Boy, Satan's just been beating me up, and he's... God is almighty. And he's able to deliver. All are going to be humbled before him. Philippians chapter 2, you're familiar with it, verses 10 and 11. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Obviously here in chapter 7, here at the end, we're, we're building up to another prophecy of Christ. But to summarize today, God can and He will save those who will call upon Him. So why did they go into captivity in the first place? Because they forsook God. They played the harlot. They went after the whoredoms of the lands around them. God finally had enough. God can deliver you from sin and sin's condemnation. God can and will deliver His people when they turn to Him. I don't know what you're going through, but you need to turn to God. He can deliver us from our enemy, and He can do marvelous things once again. God can, and He will confound the enemy. Whoever your enemies are, God can bring them low. They'll be left speechless. They won't want to hear all the wondrous works of God. God will bring vengeance. Now, the temptation is for us to take matters into our own hands. Romans 12, 19 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. But rather give place unto wrath, for is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So what are you going through? Would you let God just work in your life? Let patience have her perfect work. He's purging. He's conforming. 
He's got a purpose in it. And He just wants fellowship with you. If, if you're going through something and God begins to reveal to you a sin in your life, you need to confess it. And you need to get that right with God. And as you do and you get right with Him, you'll watch as He begins to deliver you and He'll work mightily on your behalf. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show Himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect with Him. Whatever you're going through, you need to trust Him. Let's pray.